To put it mildly, Dr. Armendariz was a lightning rod for controversy during his tenure at the EPA. Sparring with both elected officials in a state famous for its legal battles with the agency and industry leaders who viewed its regulatory requirements to be job killing, two topics we're going to discuss today. He made headlines in April when a video surfaced from 2010 in which he likened the way EPA could penalize violators to gain broader compliance to the way Romans would, quote, crucify Turks many centuries ago, and he resigned from his EPA post shortly after that. In his new post at the Sierra Club, Dr. Armendariz, who previously taught at Southern Methodist University, says he'll work to stop the construction of new coal plants in Texas and the expansion of additional coal exports from Texas ports to overseas. He'll also further the development of clean, renewable sources of energy, such as wind, solar, and geothermal. Dr. Armendariz is a third-generation Texan, born and raised in El Paso. He has an undergraduate degree in chemical engineering from MIT, a master's in environmental engineering from the University of Florida, and a doctorate in environmental engineering from the School of Public Health at the University of North Carolina. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Al Armendariz. Good Thank to you. see you, sir. Thank you, Evan. Thank you for being here. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Now, uh, leave it to the EPA to go ahead and name your replacement last night uh, as we were beginning the Tribune Fest. Uh, this fellow who is the new EPA administrator in Region 6 was the worked for, I believe, uh, uh, Governor Richardson in New Mexico, right? He did, yes, that's right. Do you know him? I do know Ron, yes. And His uh, name is Ron? Ron Curry. Ron Curry. And yes. so what, uh, what can you tell us about him as we begin to contemplate his tenure at the EPA? Yeah, uh, Ron Curry, I think, is a, a fantastic selection by the administrator. Yeah. Um, I think uh, Texas and the rest of Region 6 will be in very good hands for, for the next five years. Uh, Ron uh, is uh, pragmatic. Mm -hmm. uh, he's very smart. Yep. Uh, he understands uh, the, the need for conservation and the need for economic development. Yep. And uh, I, I, I think it was a fantastic selection. Will he be Al the second? Oh, uh, Ron will be his own person. Okay. He'll be uh, he, Ron the first. He'll be Ron the first. Okay. Yeah. So, so you, you actually see uh, some differences between you and Mr. Curry and your outlook on the job, outlooks on the job? Hmm. Um, EPA policy to large part is established by the administrator and, yeah. and by the White House. And okay. so um, I, I think what the business community and the people in this region are going to see is continuity. Yeah. Um, from, uh, from my tenure there to, to Ron's and uh, year to year, as, as long as the administrator is in office. Well, the issue of the EPA administrator acting as an agent of the, of the agency and of the administration is something I want to come to in a second as we talk about your tenure. But I want to begin with that video I alluded to in the introduction. This apparently is the week in which people's comments in previously unseen videos come back to haunt them. Um, and so I thought um, I might actually go back to the April video and, and read a little bit more about what it is that you said that got you into trouble. Sure. The, the quotes from the video. The Romans used to conquer little villages in the Mediterranean, you said. They'd go into a little Turkish town somewhere. They'd find the first five guys they saw, and they would crucify them. And then you know that town was really easy to manage for the next few years. And so you make examples out of people who are, in this case, not compliant with the law. Find people who are not compliant with the law, and you hit them as hard as you can, and you make examples out of them. And there is a deterrent effect there. And companies that are smart see that. They don't want to play that game, and they decide at that point that it's time to clean up. I liken this to playing double tennis. The first shot you take, you try to hit at the head of the person at the net, <laughs> just to basically send them a message. This is a little bit more serious. This is not a game. Would you like to take back 
Would you like to amplify the comments that I just read that got you into trouble? Hmm. Um, or explain, maybe just explain them. Yeah, so I, I've apologized for the choice of words because yeah. I think some people were personally offended by the analogy that I use. That, yeah. that I use. It certainly wasn't my intent to, uh, to uh, offend or insult anybody. Right. Um, but I, I do stand by the concept behind my comments, which is that deterrence is an important part of law enforcement. Uh, the federal government, the state government, don't have enough inspectors Mm-hmm. Uh, enough eyes on the ground, boots on the ground, to be everywhere 24-7. Right. So what uh, an overall principle is, and this is true whether it's a traffic cop or environmental enforcement, is when you do find somebody who's in, uh, violating the law, you do, within the boundaries of the law, uh, vigorously prosecute uh, as part of enforcement. Right. And, and by doing so, you have a tremendous economic benefit, because what it does is it levels the playing field. You no longer have people who are making choices to uh, cut corners, see what they can get away with, violate the law, um, um, if they know that someone else in that industry tried that yep. and got caught and got penalized. Yep. And it, it, it allows the companies who are trying to do the right thing to be uh, on a level competitive playing field uh, when you have vigorous law enforcement. And, uh, and, and those companies that are trying to do the right thing won't be at a competitive disadvantage yeah. compared to the companies that are over-polluting and, and violating the law. So this is essentially saying to companies, look, there are laws in place, there are regulations in place. If you don't obey them, we're going to come after you. It's just very simple. It's how, it's how that goes. Sure. Right. The, the, the principle is clear as you explain it. But the implication of what you said was taken by people to, to be suspicions confirmed. This guy is against industry. He was against industry when he came in. Forbes magazine, in reporting on this, said after the video was released, the day after the video came out, a reporter said he ought to resign. His comments in the video are proof that facts and science don't matter to him, that he's already made up his mind that the industry he has regulatory power over is evil. Do you, is that a fair characterization of your point of view? Oh, it's completely unfair. Yeah. Um, in fact, in, in the quotes from that day that you read, yeah. um, I over multiple times indicated yeah. companies that are violating the law. Most companies aren't violating the law. Right. Most companies work very hard not to violate the law. Mm-hmm. My whole point was for those companies who have made business decisions to cut corners, to violate the law, to go uh, beyond what the state and the federal government have told them to do yeah. to protect public health. Those are the people that you go after. Right. Because uh, over the long run, that's what's best for that industry as well as best for the American people. Okay. Well, you know, I, I was trying to think if there was ever a regional EPA administrator who was a celebrity before. <laughs> I'm not certain that any of us, if held at knife point, could have identified the name or the likeness of the regional EPA administrator before you. Right. Uh, uh, was that what you intended when you took this position? You had been, you had been happily in academia at SMU. You were mm-hmm. very well known as a passionate environmentalist, man of principle, came into the administration. Did you intend to be a celebrity in this job? It was not my intention to be um, a celebrity, um, but I knew going in that with the um, push for environmental protection that the White House and Administrator Jackson yep. were uh, already underway with, that there was going to be a lot of attention on EPA in Texas. Right. And I knew that by stepping into that job, that attention was, was going to fall to me. Naturally comes to you. A- yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Did, did you have a discussion when you came into the job with either Administrator Jackson or anybody in the administration, or I, sh- I guess I should ask the president, did you have a conversation with the president about what your goals were for this job? Was your approach to the job deliberate and proactive enough that you said to them, look, this is what I intend to do in the job, and they said, great, 
Or was it more they hired you, said, see you at the Christmas party, and then you just basically did what you thought was appropriate? Oh, no, it was, it was, it was much more the, the, the former than the latter. Yeah. Uh, Administrator Jackson and her immediate staff, all the assistant administrators in yeah. Washington, were very involved on the work that we were doing in Texas. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of environmental successes and have been over the years in right. Texas, um, but there were a number of things happening here that needed to be corrected. Right. And the administrator knew that long before You came I was, in with a list. Um, the, the list already existed. I, right. My job was to implement. Why didn't the previous administrator uh, uh, address the list? Yeah. Um, there are people who make money when you have lax regulation and lax enforcement. And, um, and those individuals and those corporations are, are well positioned here in the state of Texas. They have good lobbyists. They have good political connections. And so um, I think there was a tremendous amount of political pressure on um, federal government in prior years to turn the other way when certain things were done, not to uh, look behind the curtain yeah. on, on certain practices. Um, and, and, and the administrator and I were, weren't going to do that. We knew that, the, that we worked for the American people, all the American people, right. industry, the utilities, uh, and, and everybody who lived in the region. Right. And we were going to take, uh, a, a, uh, take our responsibility very seriously to protect the environment and public health. Uh, did, did you know that the EPA would be a flashpoint? Did you predict or did you assume, did you know that the EPA would be itself, leaving you aside, controversial in the state of Texas during this administration? Oh, oh sure. You yes. were not naive about that. You oh, knew no. that going, you oh, knew that going oh, Of in. course, yeah. Right. The, the, the administrator had a backlog of uh, national-level rules that had been sitting on the shelf and had not been implemented over the years. Uh, right. The cross-state air pollution rule, one that was in the news this year, right. new ambient air quality standards for things like ozone and sulfur dioxide, just uh, greenhouse gas regulation. Right. And I, I think everybody who was following environmental work knew that as those, roll, as those rules rolled out, there were interests in the state of Texas who were going to fight back. Uh, Attorney General Abbott, the governor, uh, certain industries, certain utilities, right. that, that they were they were going to be on the front lines regardless of who the regional administrator so was. So given the knowledge that you were going to be here, that you were not, say, the EPA regional administrator over Vermont, yeah. you knew going into this, this is an uphill battle. This is pushing a big rock up a big hill, and that you had a lot of people who, when you come into the job on day one, aren't necessarily aligned philosophically with your point of view. So what steps did you take coming into the job to work with state government, to work with the Attorney General's office, to work with the people responsible for compliance on this stuff, for that matter, to work with industry. Did you come hmm. to the table and say, look, we're not going to agree. Here are the principles that I'm coming to the table with. I want to hear what you have to say, and let's find a way we can work together in the middle. What did you do in that respect? Yeah, so um, I'll give you an example of the, the Barnett Shale up around the city of Fort Worth. Yep. Um, at the time that I came into office in, early two th in, in late 2009, uh, there was a lot of concern in the Barnett Shale. Um, it had been developed at that point. There were probably 10,000 wells on the ground. It's really the first time anywhere in our country that you saw a lot of urban drilling for natural yeah. gas. There were a lot of concerns up there. And um, I got a call from the, uh, the former executive director at TCQ who was looking for funds, some significant funds, to help him build a monitoring network in that part of Texas. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was uh, a way that he and I could collaborate together to have him be able to put those monitors on the ground so that he would better understand what the air quality impacts were from the sources in that area. Okay. Um, uh, the flexible permits, another example. Um, 
we were contemplating and, and very well um, could have gone after each of these individual companies with, in, with, with direct enforcement actions for holding permits that didn't comply with the Federal Clean There was Act. a rule in effect and there was non-compliance that was beyond dispute. Yes, yes. We felt that these companies... If the industries that you're referring to are the companies were sitting here in the front row, would they agree with you um, that they were not in compliance? Uh, I think they, uh, they would argue, um, but at the end of the day, all of them have decided to get compliant permits. In your mind, facts are on your side. Uh, I think completely. Yeah. And, but rather than going after these companies individually, one at a time, with aggressive enforcement right. actions and involving 100 DOJ attorneys and 100 corporate attorneys in lawsuits for the next decade, mm -hmm. what we did is we, I, I visited these companies individually and in groups for um, the better part of two years, and what we crafted was a way that they could get new permits. Um, uh, that wouldn't involve enforcement, wouldn't involve litigation, we kept it out of the courts. Yeah. Um, so I didn't come into this job with the agenda to shut anybody down, to penalize any um, uh, industry or industry group in the state of Texas. I wanted to get certain things in the state of Texas right with the federal statutes. Mm. Um, and if that meant that the easiest way to do it was through enforcement, if we found somebody violating the law, then that's what we would do. Right. But uh, we certainly uh, looked for every other opportunity that was out there. Uh, uh, to work with companies to, to, to get them to do the right thing. I suspect, Dr. Ravindaras, there were some issues on which you guys and those guys had uh, some common ground. Sure. And then there were some on which, like climate change, which you say mm -hmm. you believe in, and there are many people in the state of Texas and in the state government who perhaps take a different point of view about that. Uh, there's probably not much bridging that gap, right? If you're, mm -hmm. if you're trying to address a problem that people on the other side don't acknowledge exists, it's a little hard to come to some agreement. It, it can be sure, yeah. um, but uh, I think the the science and the the um, uh, the, uh, the science of climate change is is really irrefutable, and I think those folks who are continuing to deny that climate change is a problem and that it's caused by human emissions are really on the wrong side of history, and are eventually going to be as irrelevant as the physicians and there are physicians today who continue to deny that smoking causes lung cancer, and I think the, the, the the folks that deny the reality of climate change and that human activity is causing climate change are going to find themselves gradually marginalized to the outskirts of our public discourse the way that those, those physicians have found themselves. Uh, you represented an administration, Dr. Ramadores, that did not do an enormous amount on that issue. You know, there was some discussion of ways in which climate change could be addressed. And nationally, well, maybe I should just put it to you this way. Are you satisfied upstream from you mm -hmm. that the administration felt as as definitively and as passionately about this issue as you obviously did and do. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. You look at the, the clean car rules that yeah. the administration has put out yeah. are the, the largest federal action ever by any government right. to reduce carbon emissions uh, from the country. Um, yeah. and, the, the, and just in case people don't know, the miles per gallon of American fleets on average in, in our lifetime in 2025 are going to be over 50 miles per gallon, 52.5 miles per gallon. Um, and right now, they're averaging in the 20s. And so we are, we are more, we're going to more than double the fuel economy of American vehicles because of the actions of President Obama. Mm -hmm. we've, we've also passed uh, new, uh, new source performance standards for uh, coal-fired EGU. So if someone's right. going to build a new coal-fired power plant in the United States after next year, they have to meet very stringent standards for capturing their carbon and, and basically running that coal plant the equivalent of a natural gas plant. So um, are, are there things the administration could have been uh, or could have done over the years, yeah. uh, above and beyond that, sure. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I'm very comfortable with the record of the administration as it, as, it, as it is so far. Do you feel, as you look back on your tenure at the EPA, that you were overly aggressive? Maybe you feel you were not aggressive enough in, in dealing with both industry and the state? 
Hmm. Um, you had a little bit of time to reflect on your tenure. I'm just wondering, yeah. as you look back, what do you think was your affect? Was it properly calibrated? Was it too much? Was it too little? Was it just right? Oh no. Uh, okay. So no, I think the I, th I think the calibration was was exactly what it should have been, and yeah. and more appropriately what the what the law required. Yeah. All of these rules that are getting so much pushback from the Attorney General's office, from the TCQ, from the industry folks. Right. Um, those are rules that um, the president didn't write. Those are rules. That, you know, those those are. Those aren't rules that, that the administrator just pulled out a whole cloth. Yeah. These are requirements of the Clean Air Act as it was passed in the 70s, an amendment in 1990 under right. Republican administrations that required states to reduce their emissions across state lines, that required right. coal-fired utilities to capture their mercury. I mean, these are things that were set in motion generations ago. And the, the, the president is simply, for the first time ever, following through with the requirements of the law as Congress. You all didn't it. write the rules. You're simply honoring what was written before you got there. Yeah, so, so the, the statutory requirements were there and have been there. Right. Um, you know, the president didn't pass a new Clean Air Act. The president didn't pass a new Clean Water Act. Yeah. What you're seeing today is finally the implementation and enforcement of statutes that have been on the books for generations. Let me ask you about that, because as you know, Texas has been uh, uh, really interested in suing the federal government over the last couple of years. There are more federal lawsuits, I think, that the, that the state of Texas has against uh, this. They're going to politifact this, and it'll be proven wrong, but let me say it anyway. Uh, I think there are more lawsuits that we have against the federal government currently than any other state uh, uh, has. Uh, and the majority of those are against the EPA or related to EPA stuff. In three instances recently, relatively recently, court rulings have come down that would actually suggest your assertions of a moment ago notwithstanding that in fact the administration was not uh, honoring rules that had been in place or honoring them properly. I went through the mm -hmm. court rulings in three <laughs> notable instances. The pollution control permitting case the flex permits case and the Casper or cross-state air pollution case. Yeah. These are direct quotes from the rulings under pollution control permitting. Quote, the EPA had no legal basis on which to disprove these regulations. Quote, the EPA failed to identify a single provision of the Clean Air Act that Texas's program violated. Under flex permits, quote, EPA acted arbitrarily and capriciously and in excess of statutory authority. On Casper, quote, EPA exceeded the agency's statutory authority. That's kind of a rebuke, isn't it, in each instance, of the idea hmm. that there were rules in effect, we didn't write them, we simply put them into effect. Yeah, those quotes to me point out the importance of getting the president to appoint justices to the federal judiciary who will follow the law. So you think the problem is not that you all overstepped, you think the problem is that the wrong judges are on those courts and the right judges would have actually sided with the president? Yeah, I'm, I'm confident that those actions, uh, as they were written, were written uh, completely in compliance with the law. Right. And that, um, and that when those rules are revised, um, that, uh, that, 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 that the agency is, um, is, is going to win any future litigation. That, you, you know, one of the things that you didn't point out is the fact that the agency has won um, spectacularly on a number of very important cases talk, before, talk about, before the talk federal about bench. Those, please. The greenhouse gas regulations that the agency yeah. has put out have been upheld by the, the, the D.C. Circuit Court. Uh, the National Ambient Air Quality Standards for sulfur dioxide and nitrogen dioxide. The, the work that we did here in Texas to eliminate what were called the qualified facilities exemptions that would, that would uh, uh, exempt uh, uh, processes and changes at industrial facilities from having to go through permitting yep. and, and kind of hide that transparency from the people that live near these facilities. Um, all of those were upheld by the federal courts. And, and so um, EPA isn't going to go away. 
So when... Despite, despite the very direct assertion by some people who seek office, they'd like to eliminate it. Right. So yeah. um, I, I think the wise people in the industry and utilities know yeah. that all that happens when those kinds of adverse decisions that you read come forward is those rules go back to the agency, they get worked on again, the agency tries to uh, craft them in a way that those judges instruct, but sends them up again anyway. Yeah. And it's simply a delay of the inevitable. And I think uh, companies are well served um, uh, by, 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 by reading the tea leaves, seeing the writing on the wall, and doing the kinds of things they need to do to get in compliance. Let me ask you one more thing about uh, uh, an approach you took to this job, and then I want to go back and understand a little bit more about you hmm? and your thinking as it evolved uh, growing up in El Paso. Uh, many folks in industry say of you, the problem was that he came after specific companies by name. He used the bully pulpit of his position hmm. to not just take on industry or non-compliant companies within industry, but he seemed to have a real thing for specific companies. And he, he went after specific companies, and he just created an environment or an atmosphere that made it difficult to work together. Do you uh, accept any of that, or do you reject that? Oh, I completely reject it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I did not take this job with any preconceived um, notions of um, good companies, bad companies. Yeah. There wasn't a single company that I came in on day one and said, okay, we're going to have to go after these folks. X, or, right, yeah. or, uh, I went over to my enforcement director and said, all right, you've, uh, you've got to get all your guys and go down. Full-time job to get on this company. No, never, never, never did anything like that. Um, in, in fact, of the, the hundred or so very large companies that held these flexible permits, um, that, uh, that we communicated and said you need to get good permits. Uh, I'm not aware of a single one of those companies that has shut down, a single one of those companies that has had to cut jobs. Yep. Uh, in, in fact, I know of many of those companies that are expanding their operations in Texas and adding jobs. And so yeah. this idea that I had some kind of agenda to go after individual companies is... Well, I, you know, that, that was, in fact, as you bring up the question of jobs, that was kind of the knock uh, on you from some was, you know, uh, which part of 8% unemployment and double-digit underemployment does Dr. Armendariz not understand? You know, this is a moment in which we have to not restrict the ability of companies to hire. So goes their argument, yeah. which you may reject at hand. And you know, what you were doing was really creating an environment in which, by being such a rigorous enforcer of these rules, some of which they think overstepped, you were making it harder for the economic climate to survive the bad times nationally. Yeah, well, I, I think the, the the facts completely fly in the face of that assertion. Yeah, um, we have now, under the administrator and under the president, moved forward to, for the first time, uh, finally implement provisions of the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act. Yeah. And at the same time, industry in Texas, um, certain industry in Texas, has done very, very well. Yeah. Uh, petrochemical industry is adding refining capacity. Utilities are building new plants. Yeah. So, so, um, and, and we're doing so in an environment where we're moving forward with the mercury rule. We're moving forward to regulate greenhouse gases. Right. We're moving forward with new national ambient air quality standards. So I, I, I don't think that economic growth is in any way incompatible with, with vigorously enforcing the law. Let me uh, take you back to El Paso. You, we said you grew up in El Paso, third mm -hmm. generation Texan. Yep. Anybody who grows up in El Paso, uh, grows up in El Paso looking at the Anasarco Towers, you know, this is an environment in which you are hyper aware of the world out there that you found a career in or, or a, 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 a philosophical basis in. How much was your uh, a time as a child growing up in El Paso uh, relevant to the, the way that your philosophy about this stuff developed? Or was it totally irrelevant to the way your philosophy uh, No, No, it, 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 it certainly was important. Uh, as a kid, I, I didn't know much about air pollution. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't know that you could taste the air. And I did know when you were playing outside my grandmother's house, who was a short distance from the Sarco, 
that you'd get this burning, tingling sensation. So in the some back people of the say, "Oh, I could taste the air growing up, and they're being hyperbolic." You actually mean it? Oh, sure. Literally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the emissions of sulfur and sulfuric acid from that plant when I was a kid are just, uh, are just ridiculous. When you, right. when you look back now on the statistics, I, I, I'm amazed that people were allowed to live there. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I do recognize that. I did lie to you uh, in something I told you a few minutes ago. You asked me if I came into the office with any preconceived agenda to go after any individual companies. Yeah. Um, and I, I told you I didn't. Um, I came in at the end of 2009, in November of 2009. Right. So the administrator, uh, Lisa, had, had, had been in office for a number of months. And it was very early on, after President Obama was inaugurated and after Lisa took office, that the EPA took steps to um, uh, essentially shut down the Asarco uh, smelter in El Paso. Yeah. And uh, had they not done that, I, that is the one site in this state I would have worked night and day to shut down. Right. It was an old dirty, ancient facility that put lead and arsenic all over the side of town where I grew up. Yeah. And, um, and I was going to find any legal means to, to keep that thing from, from restarting, yeah. um, despite the best efforts of the TCQ to give them back their air permits and turn them back on. Right. So, in fact, it was a formative period of time for you growing up, oh, as, as, as sure. far as it shaped your, your thinking. Mm -hmm. Do you think the political climate today, Dr. Amandoras, is so hyperpartisan and so poisoned, so toxic, that it's impossible for anybody to come together on issues like the ones we've been talking about? Do you, have you lost hope for some middle ground? Or conversely, maybe I should say, is there no cause for middle ground? Basically, stick to your principles and let the chips fall. Hmm. Um, it is hard to see middle ground on many of these issues. Yeah. The, um, the Republicans in the House have tried 300 times, on 300 separate occasions, to gut provisions of the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act the last few years. There have been 300 separate votes to remove provisions from the Clean Air Act, remove provisions from the Clean Water Act. Now, they've lost 300 times, but they keep trying. And in fact, they just tried um, uh, uh, just earlier this week um, to remove the ability of the agency, for example, to, to regulate greenhouse gases or to remove the ability of the agency to tell a coal mining company that you can't take all of the top of the mountain you just blew off and dump it into a stream. Yep. Um, and so those kinds of efforts are constant right now. So is there any middle ground? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't see much. Um, it would be nice if there is. There is one avenue where I do think there's middle ground, and I think it's in the development of renewable energy. Talk you know, about that. Yeah, well, we, here in Texas, we produce more wind power than any other state. In fact, more than the next several states combined. Right. And it's been a very bipartisan and largely Republican-led effort to put in the infrastructure to develop wind power in the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. um, it's also enormously expensive to get power from the source to the end user. Um, and there are a lot of people who resist having those Cres lines on their land. Yeah, so. What do you do about that? Well, the expense is um, almost done. The state has invested a significant amount of money to bring that transmission into the cities in central and eastern Texas. And so. And once that investment is made, none of the costs of that will hit my power bill if I choose to be a user of wind power. Yeah, so. Um, is, that, is that right? I'm not an expert on the financing of the Crest Lines, yeah. and so I'm not sure exactly how long those are going to take to pay off. But the substantial amount of the investment for those Crest Lines is almost done. I mean, those, those lines wow. are almost completely built out now. Yeah. Now, in terms of the investment, you also have to look at the investment that our country put 100 years ago in building all of the railroads in this country. 50% yeah. of the rail traffic in this country, 50% of the rail cars that are moving around are carrying coal in this country. So the railroad companies are benefiting tremendously from all of the land and direct financing that the federal government gave them 100 years ago and through the years to build the American railroad system. So 
You know, we, we have a government that builds infrastructure for the needs of its people. Um, and I certainly don't think it's fair to try to wall off the renewables industry from any kind of, of that federal or state Pro, investment. Proactive investment, build, help the industry get on its feet, and then provide people with options. Uh, absolutely. Whether it's right. the railroads for the coal, the building of reservoirs for the, um, the fossil fuel fired power plants yeah. that the Corps of Engineers did. I mean, you can just go on and on and on over the last hundred years and look at the build out of infrastructure that our government uh, uh, paid for mm-hmm. um, to to put electricity on the grid. But, but let, let me come back to this question of the Kres lines. You know, in a lot of areas of energy and renewable energy, specifically these days, we have kind of a problem where people say, "Yes, I like this in theory, but don't put those solar discs on my property, sure, or don't let the trans." I mean, people who are for the uh, the Trans Canada Pipeline, what we used to call the Keystone Pipeline. I don't want them to come and take my, you know, eminent domain. No, I don't want them to come through my property. Yeah. Or in the case of wind, as I said, the Kres lines coming across people's property. They don't want that. You know, there was a famous lawsuit a couple of years ago, King Ranch and Kennedy Ranch, scrapping over the idea that even putting up the wind turbines would disrupt the view corridor, looking out at the Gulf. We don't want to have that happen. How do you get people to put their own self-interest if that's what you believe, to the side on this and say that for the greater good, we need to let people have these options and that's going to require some sacrifice of your land or view card or what have you. Yeah. I'm not unsympathetic to people who want to preserve the undeveloped vistas where um, transmission lines go or wind turbines go or solar panels might go. Um, uh, uh, I do think we have to be very sensitive about putting that kind of infrastructure, like any kind of infrastructure, in places where we have very sensitive wildlife areas where we have endangered species, whether it's the prairie chicken, whether it's uh, places on the Gulf Coast where we have migratory birds. There's ways to do renewables that are smart. Um, But for people who simply want to keep the land undeveloped um, in in Central and West Texas, I'm I'm sympathetic, but only to a point. I think if they look at the destruction that has happened in Appalachia at the mountaintop coal mines, um, they will see the the, the absolute insult that that is to, to this country and to the people of West Virginia. Kentucky, yeah. or if they look at you come down here and and um, and, uh, and 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 uh, imagine what Texas would be like if the drought that we had last year that has been going on for this year is our new normal and goes on every year or most every year for the next 20 years. That's what climate change is um, is uh, is going to bring us if we don't get our arms around it and reduce our CO2 emissions. Yeah. And um, the the uh, the impact that that will have on Texas will be a lot more than the disruption of certain landowners' land. Isn't, the, at the moment, Dr. Ramondaras, a great threat to the prospect of renewables taking a real hold on the energy market here, the low cost of natural gas? As long as hmm. the price of natural gas is down, other things are more expensive, it's hard for those things to get traction, isn't it? Well, um, uh, I think there are tremendous benefits to the low cost of power. Yeah. And insofar as the low cost of natural gas is driving low cost electricity in the state, I think it's a very that's, good. That's a good thing. I think it's a fantastic thing. Right. But, think, but, it, but it makes the renewables, which may have a higher cost point, a little harder to get people to embrace. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if electricity was 10 times as much, we'd, 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 we'd build lots of everything. Right. But the, the problem with that is then there would also be an economic incentive to build more coal plants, uh, which, would do, uh, which would make our drought problems even more, um, uh, more problematic. Yeah. Let, let, let me go right there, because here we are uh, sitting today. You're now senior campaign representative for the Sierra Club, your effort is basically go coal, go away, Yes, is your idea. But there's different coal. There's the old coal, but then we have this thing that's called clean coal, this new, now maybe you think it's branding and semantics, but you know, Laura Miller, the former mayor of Dallas, who you know is no one's idea of a conservative or an energy hog, 
is now actually, since she's out of office, lobbying on behalf of or working on behalf of project managing for Summit Power clean coal plant. Your former boss, the president, in talking about any and all for energy options, talks about clean coal. So here is a place where perhaps you and your former boss and you and some of your fellow environmentalists don't see eye to eye in that they think clean coal is a good option. You're not necessarily convinced. Um, I'm certainly in favor of cleaning up the coal plants that we have on the ground today. Right. Um, I Ret think retrofitting. Absolutely. Retrofitting the plants yeah. that we have today so that we minimize their public health impact or we shut them down as quickly as possible. Um, I think they have put the costs of their pollution onto the public for, for way too long. And it's time for them to capture those externalities and to pay for them themselves. As for clean coal, uh, I certainly think a uh, plant, a coal plant that is cleaned up, that has scrubbers, that captures the carbon, that captures the mercury and so on, is a better option than a plant that doesn't do those things. But as far as the economics, when I look at what it costs and what the energy costs to produce are for those clean coal plants, I do think they're unnecessary. I think at the cost it's going to uh, take to build a clean coal plant, to capture the sulfur, capture the mercury, and bury the carbon underground, um, um, at that point, uh, renewables are not only in the game, but, 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 but drive the economics. At that point, not only is natural gas less expensive, but solar is less expensive, and wind is less, right. and, and so on. And so, um, and so clean coal, I think, is technically feasible, but I think it's completely unnecessary. And it, yeah. does, it does nothing to ameliorate the environmental impacts of the people who are living in states like West Virginia and Kentucky and Wyoming who are seeing the earth completely scraped up and, and, and hauled but away. But you can't solve every problem. I, mean, I, I, want, I want to come back to this question of the economics of the clean coal plant. I mean, you're, you're making mm -hmm. it sound as if the construction of clean coal plants is possible, but the economics of it are not really very good economics. And so if these companies want to go to all this trouble and spend all this money, they're welcome to do it, except why would they want to under the circle? Is that, that a distillation of your point of view on yeah. this? Well, essentially, yeah. but, but, but recognizing... Isn't that, isn't that up to them, though? Shouldn't that be... I mean, if they want to spend the money to build clean coal plants and make a bet that does not come true, isn't that really... It's sort of up to them to do it. Oh, sure, if they want to spend their money building a clean coal plant, right. uh, more power to them. Yeah. However, um, the environmental impacts upstream at the mining communities in West Virginia, right. in Kentucky, in Wyoming, as well as the water needs that these plants are going to have, right. um, are not going to be um, uh, taken care of by adding on the kinds of scrubbers that are necessary to capture the air. So pollutants. even if the plant is clean, yes, the other consequences of being in the coal business, clean or dirty, are themselves problematic. Yeah, the, the full life cycle of that coal. Stuff, that stuff does not go away. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So what do you do now in this new job? How do you actually process? I mean, you know, obviously you had a job that had enormous power before. You were the man, right, basically? And you represented the administration. You had a big club, and that big club was your business card. Now you're with the Sierra Club. You have, a, you have that club. And, and, the and the fact is, we like the Sierra Club. Sierra Club is welcome to be in there swinging at the ball every day. But the Sierra Club, as an organization advocating for all this stuff, doesn't have the same power or clout necessarily as the administration might. Hmm. So help us understand the transition from the previous situation to this one. How are you in a better position to advocate for this portfolio of issues than you would have been previously? Yeah, so I was very careful um, about what I did next. I still wanted to work on environmental issues and in particular work on climate change issues. And by far the coal industry from beginning to end yeah. is the largest contributor to our climate problem. 
we solve the coal problem, we will have largely solved our climate issues in this country. You really believe that? Completely. Yeah. Um, so I joined the Beyond Coal campaign um, first because of its mission to go after coal, but, but second because of its track record of success. Back in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, and people here in Texas will remember this, there was this huge push to build new coal plants. There were over 200 proposals to build coal plants in this country. Um, so there were uh, permit applications all over the country. Yep. The Sierra Club and its allies have stopped 90% of those permit applications from succeeding. Um, so, so in, it, in fact, maybe it is a big club. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and in addition to that, because of the work that Sierra Club has done with its allies yeah. in letting the American people know about the damage of coal, um, EPA has moved forward with rules to finally capture some of those e externalities, the air and the water emissions from the coal industry, and make the coal industry pay for them rather than the public. And Sierra Club has really been leading the charge to uh, advocate for those. And I'll, the example I'll give you is the, the new source performance standard rule that was um, published to reduce greenhouse gases from the coal industry. There were more than two million public comments that were gathered um, in large part by Sierra Club and its allies to the EPA in support of those rules. It was the most amount of public comment that has ever been gathered for any administrative rule put out by any agency in the history of this country. And that was the work that Sierra Club did. And so it's a combination of this grassroots work, one plant at a time, one permit application at a time, along with advocating for finally implementing the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, that has now got the coal industry in a bind. The statistic I'll give you, for the longest time in our country, the coal industry generated more than 50% of our power. You can go back decades. It was, you know, it was 52, 54, 52, 54, as throughout the 90s and the early 2000s. This is just this flat line. Coal is producing half the power that we use in this country. That number is now plummeting. And it's, 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 now, in, it's now in the mid-30s. Uh, I think the most recent DOE data is now down to 34%. And it's going down rapidly. Yep. And so the coal industry is, is dying. We're generating our power with different sources, and, and it, it, coal really doesn't have a future. And your, your message to the coal industry, honestly, is good riddance. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you're unambivalent about that or about the consequences economically or otherwise that might result from disappearance of coal. Well, no. Um, good riddance to the use of coal, but what we do need to do is be smart about what we replace coal with and how we take care of those workers. Um, today, there are more people working in solar and wind than there are people working at coal mines and coal plants. So the American labor force is already beginning to make the shift they're to transitioning. clean energy. Exactly. Yeah. But there still are people who are dependent on those jobs, who work at, at, at the coal plants and at the coal mines around the country. And what we need to do is, as best we can, work with utilities to site new, cleaner industry in those communities to minimize the hit that those workers are going to have. Yeah. Are we going to be able to succeed in every place and have a one-for-one -one switch between a fossil fuel job with a renewables job? Probably not. Um, but we should try every place that we can. And what you're finding is that if you take a broad enough look, the country is already replacing fossil fuel jobs with renewable jobs. West Texas is a perfect example. Right. I, drive, I, I drove so many times between my, uh, my home in Dallas and, and my family in El Paso. You drive through West Texas and you do that for the decade and yep. a, dozens and then hundreds and now it seems like thousands of turbines that are up 
in, 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 in uh, the western part of Texas. And you'll, you'll see, see those turbines on ranches, sometimes with oil and gas wells right. all together. You know, it's this, it's this economic boom that's happened in West Texas and created and, and yet thousands the, there's, of jobs. And yet there's skepticism about whether wind can actually get the traction for the reasons we talked about earlier. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm confident that renewables, when done well, and I think we're doing well in Texas, yeah. are going to be able to replace the power that we lose with coal. Um, last question before we, and we have about 20 or so minutes, there, right? Before we open it up for questions from the audience. Uh, the pre as I said, the president is out there among those advocating for coal. He's not advocating for dirty coal, he's advocating for clean coal. Right. When will the Sierra Club be attacking the president for that? Hmm. When will you be attacking the president for that? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the work of the president, and I think his environmental agenda has been, um, um, has been assertive and, uh, and uh, the best of any American president. So you're going to give him a pass on that? Well, I'm not going to give him a pass. I just think that the economics of clean coal don't work right now, and that the cost of building a coal plant that has the same environmental impact as a natural gas plant or a wind turbine or a solar farm yeah. is astronomical, and no one would build it, and no one is building it. So he'll, he'll come to see that himself? Well, I think the market already sees that. You, you don't see investors going out trying to build new coal plants around the country. It's not where people are putting their money. Right. But, so you're not going to personally st take out after the president in this case? Oh, no. no. <laughs> I tried. Okay, uh, let's, uh, let's open it up for questions. Um, I guess in this room, which I've not been in today so far, we don't have microphones in the... Uh, oh, we do? Oh, we have yep. a handheld. Good, thank you. Excellent. So I will ask that the handheld be passed to people who have questions and we'll go for as long. You'll let me know when it's just a little bit before 12. We want to be sure to get you out to the, I hear the Korean barbecue truck is delicious. So we'll get you out to the South Mall and we'll let you do your thing. Sir, and then over here. Well, I'm yes. a Turk from industry, but uh, I'm going to stand up and talk anyway. Question, so you've talked about beyond coal, but uh, the Sierra Club is also beyond gas. And so that begs the question, what are you for? And if it's renewables, do we really think that we can cover Texas with enough windmills and solar panels to power the state? Given the fact that we have such a problem with our electric grid, as I gather you all heard during the prior panel, what do we do about that? Yeah, so um, I don't think we can transition off of coal tomorrow. I don't think we can transition off of coal a year from now. Um, uh, in fact, there's probably going to be coal plants running 10 years from now. Uh, but we, what we see already and what we really want is a trajectory going down and down to zero um, uh, sometime soon. And uh, the, the electric industry is already there. There have been 100, I think the latest number I saw was 132 existing coal plants in this country that have either shut down or announced to shut down. So the coal industry is going away. When it comes to gas, um, uh, the gas industry still has environmental impacts. While their, say, their climate emissions are only half of the climate impacts of coal, um, that's a pretty low bar to call yourself clean. I mean, you, it's still half of a very large number if you look at it megawatt per megawatt. So um, my position is, is that if we're going to replace some of this coal capacity with gas, that we do it as little as possible. Um, and then it's also very incumbent upon the natural gas industry to really clean up its act. Um, and not treat drilling in a populated area like the city of Fort Worth the way that maybe they were treating drilling 20 miles north of Odessa 20 years ago. It's very different. I think some of the problems that they are having in the Northeast, drilling in the watersheds of Philadelphia, New York, are because they tried to carry on the practices and the same mindset and attitude 
of drilling out in rural West Texas or in central Oklahoma. And um, you know, that, that, it, it, that's, that's a fantastic way of fomenting um, public opposition. But, but the, the, the questioner's point, yep. which I don't think you answered, Dr. Arnors, what do we have enough power oh, options right. to, to, to essentially power the grid if you take coal out of the equation, if you reduce all these things you don't like, mm -hmm. are we going to be okay from a power standpoint? I, I think so, sure. I mean, uh, how many people 20 years ago thought we would generate, be generating 10% of our power with wind? Uh, no one did. And look at the astronomical growth we've had in the wind industry. There are more than enough renewable resources in this state to power the electric demands of this state. Now, do I think gas is going to go anytime soon? No. Do I think we need to minimize its use? Yes. You have a lot of faith in the grid right now? Uh, no, uh, I, I think um, I think there has been a, a, a complete lack of leadership and a complete lack of of, of uh, forethought in 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 building a robust electric grid in the state of Texas. Okay, I, I'm glad you have faith that we can get someplace better because I'm worried. Yes, sir. Uh, two questions for the good doctor: Do you consider TCEQ a captured regulator, <laughs> and who would you like the public to know about? Two or three most egregious and politically protected polluters in Texas. What do you mean by captured regulator? That may be a term that I'm just not as knowledgeable That means about. a regulator who's captured by the industry it's supposed to regulate. Yeah, do you think, T oh, so you basically mean they're in the tank? Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. You think TCEQ's in the tank? Uh, um, yes. i say this. Um, there are some fantastic staff at TCEQ, and I think they've got poor leadership. I think the governor's appointees at that commission are keeping the TCQ from doing its job. And so you put this on Governor Perry? I do, and on his three commissioners. Uh, I think that they have uh, fantastic technical capability, they have a fantastic legal staff, they have some dedicated employees in that agency who um, would sometimes communicate with, to my staff outside of the chain of command when I was at EPA. They were so worried about saying something they would get caught with. They were so worried that they um, would not be able to say something in public or would be shot down if they tried to send something up the chain that they were finding other ways to try to get it to people who worked for me. Um, so um, I think it's a, a good agency with good people that can do good work and does sometimes do very, very good work. Um, but I think they make some poor decisions and I think that that uh, structure really starts at the top. Questioner is also asking for you to call people out by name. Oh, I'm not gonna, not gonna do that. The Asarco smelter is closed and uh, so. Might have been gauche to do it, but you also might have decided anyway. So I'm interested in the fact that you declined. Um, uh, up in the, I can't right, yeah, see right anything, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, Dr. Rout, so this gentleman over here pointed out the, the no side of the Sierra Club probably even fair to say beyond uh, natural gas, they don't like natural gas, don't like oil, don't like nuclear. So can you talk a little bit about what the club is doing specifically to promote clean energy and jobs and economic development in Texas as opposed to just saying no? Yeah, sure. And if you think, by the way, whether that it's your responsibility to do that, I think the, the premise is that you have an obligation. You may not agree with that. Yeah, so... Um uh, I do think that the that uh, Sierra Club is well served to be not just the club that says no, like we're saying no to coal, but the club that says yes. And so, what do we say yes to? We we do say yes absolutely to the development of renewables. And in fact, it isn't just something we say yes to; it's something that we promote and something we take action on. Uh, just two weeks ago, we filed a petition with the PUC. Um, the legislature in 2007 
as part of the renewable portfolio uh, uh, statutes in the state of Texas, uh, asked the, the PUC to develop a 500 megawatt non-wind renewable portfolio standard as a way of kicking off the other kinds of renewables that we have in the state of Texas, um, solar, geothermal, yep. principally. Um, and the PUC hasn't yet moved forward with rulemaking to make that happen. And so we, together with a lot of our allies in labor and other environmental groups, have now filed a legal petition and they've opened a docket to take public comment on whether they should now move forward with rulemaking, finally after all these years, to uh, establish a non-wind renewable portfolio standard to really kickstart the solar and geothermal industries in this country. So that's something affirmative that you're for as opposed uh, to abso negative. Abso absolutely. And yeah. geothermal has a, a, a fantastic footprint in that some of the oldest, actually the oldest coal plants in Texas are in East Texas, burn that really dirty, um, uh, wet Texas lignite. Um, and that also is geologically some of the area where we have geothermal resources, where we have heat in the earth that we can tap to generate power. One, an example of where we can perhaps tamp down the use of fossil fuels and perhaps geographically in that same place build other sources of power and provide that, that local economy with another source of income. Okay. Again, I can't see. Thank Dr. you. Al, yeah. which one do you think we'll run out of first? Uh, sunshine and wind or fossil fuels? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think we're going to have both forever because um, what I'm going to try to do is keep our coal in the ground um, with all the other rocks that are down there. Um, we, we, we can't use all of the coal reserves that we have. We have more coal reserves in this country than any other place on earth. And my job is to keep it in the ground where it is today. And so um, uh, as, as I think your question was leading, we are going to have endless quantities of renewable energy. Um, it is a completely sustainable resource. And what we really need to be doing in Texas is not looking at um, only our grid challenges next year or our grid challenges 10 years from now as our population grows, but really thinking about what, what kind of energy mix are we going to need and are we going to have 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now. Um, the, the, the last second scrambling that you've seen with Texas regulators and Texas utilities the last couple of years because we are so short of capacity should never happen again. It, it is, uh, it is um, economically, it, it's, it's dangerous and from the public health standpoint it's very dangerous as well. What we need is some long-term planning and long-term vision and deciding, okay, well, what's the writing on the wall? Do we really think we're going to have coal plants being built 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now? I had one of Governor Perry's appointees at one of these very powerful agencies in the state of Texas come and tell me in Dallas. He knows that there's no future for coal in Texas. Um, and you want to tell us who that no, was? No, no, I'll, no. Just, just kidding. No. Um, yeah. So, uh, so what we need to do? I don't think do he liked being outed very much for having no. said that. So we, we've, we've, what we've got to do is take steps to um, uh, uh, and, and plan properly so that we have more than enough electricity. Um, and is generate as much of it as we can. For is renewables. the problem that we're going our own way grid-wise? Um, no, I, I know we like to go our own way on so many things, but is there maybe a point at which you go, yeah, we tried that, it didn't work? No, I don't, I, I don't know that that's a problem. It does, it, it does seem to prevent um, different parts of the country from being able to um, assist others, uh, either at a time of a blackout, a time, uh, a time where other parts of the country perhaps have lower demand than, than, than we do, yeah. or where we have excess supply. Um, it does seem to limit uh, some of, I guess, some of the economics and reliability benefits that might uh, that might happen if we had a more connected grid. But I, I don't know that that by itself is is, is, is the problem. No, ma'am. Uh, Dr. Al, how can we uh, shift the focus from from consumption to conservation and incentivize uh, 
weatherizing and, and putting light roofs, I mean, all kinds of things that we could do to reduce our consumption of energy, which would be like having another source of energy. Yeah, so um, I, I'm a big proponent of, of conservation. I, uh, I know e even in my own life and uh, in, in what I do, I, I certainly am, am occasionally wasteful. And, and I think uh, having government incentives in place to conserve makes a lot of sense whether it's for individual homeowners to insulate, uh, double pane their windows, uh, buy more fuel efficient cars, or buy electric vehicles, I think all of that is good public policy. But at the same time, I recognize that our state, our population is growing like crazy. I mean, we, we just gained four congressional seats in this latest round of redistricting. And, um, and industry here is growing very rapidly as well. So uh, I also, while I believe in conservation, also believe that we, what we really need is to have an overabundance of supply. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that we need to have more than enough generation capacity and the transmission to get it out there than we think we're going to need. And we have a nice, go back to the old days, where we had a nice, comfortable 20% reserve margin planned out with population growth, with the drought, with the growth in industry for the next 100 years. That's where we need to get. Um, because I think, I think our economy will flourish um, when, when we have something like that. Uh, we have one over there. Anybody over here? Okay. So. Uh, yeah, let me go right here, and then, and then Kate, I'll come over to you, ma'am. I think we'll just have time for a couple more, and then let you all go eat. Can we get where you want us to be uh, with the 20% reserve margin and with more renewables? Can we do that in our deregulated uh, environment? Um. <coughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and claim to be an expert in, in the, de, the, de, the, the, the deregulation process that the state went through. Um, I, I don't know that the deregulated market or, 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 or going back to a regulated market is really, is really the solution. Uh, what we really need is um, long-term planning and long-term vision uh, by, by the PUC, by ERCOT, by the governor, by the utilities, by the industrial buyers and and by the cities, um, and um, the, the the state can get out of its power crunch. Um, it's it's simply going to take it's going to take some time, and in, and some time for the the new generation to come online. Uh, now the good news is that we are seeing new generation come online. There are, there there are uh, new wind turbines being put up as we speak. San Antonio has got a huge contract to build solar. Some, some new very large natural gas plants that are being built. So uh, I think we're on we're on the right path. Um, but it's not going to be easy because at, at the same time, many of the coal assets in the state are, are going to be shutting down. Um, and so not only do we need to be building at the velocity that we are today, but that velocity really does need to ramp up, um, not only to eventually get us a reserve margin, but simply to make up for, for yeah. these coal units that are going to be coming down. Okay, we'll make this the last one. Is that okay? Very well. My question is, um, um, the Dallas Morning News pointed out yesterday that uh, uh, when Ron Curry was appointed, he's the first non-Texan uh, no. since 1970 or so, and I'm just curious what you think the dynamic um, of that is. He's from a uh, new regional administrator right. from New Mexico. So say you hate it. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I, li I like Ron, and... Um, even though he's not from here. Even though he's not a Texan, yeah. Um, you know, El Pasoans, we have a, a very nice relationship with, with You're New You're practically Mexicans. New Mexicans yeah. anyway, right? That's how Although not a one of them can drive. It's just, <laughs> it's awful. Um, but, 
you know, Ron, um, Ron is coming from a state that has water challenges similar to uh, really the western half of Texas yeah. and what could very well be the majority of Texas if we keep getting droughts like we had last year. Yeah. So I think Ron is an ideal person to be sitting in that chair thinking about things like water supply, water conservation, the building of new reservoirs. So um, water is such a critical issue in this region, the country, yeah. and I think Ron is really ideally situated. So I'm, No matter where he's from. Yeah, no matter where he's from. Even if he is from New Mexico. Uh, Dr. Armendariz, you've been very kind to endure this and to put yourself in the hot seat there. I thank you very much for everything you're doing for us and, and for what you have done before. So oh. We appreciate you being here. Thank, thank you. you. You're welcome. Uh, go have lunch. We'll see you this afternoon.